Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we ask that you would come and meet with us today as you've promised, and that you would tend to your word, that it might land in our hearts. And we ask that you would press your truth and your presence into the nooks and crannies of our soul where we need to experience uh, your love, your favor, your justice, your grace, your righteousness, your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, today is the first Sunday in Advent, and if you're new to the Christian faith, uh, Advent is a season, it's four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and it is something that uh, Christians have celebrated for 2,000 years. And Advent comes from the Latin word that means arrival. And what this is referring to is a season when Christians have recognized we're going to prepare ourselves to celebrate the great arrival of God in the person of his son that we mark as Christmas. But we're also anticipating his return. So it's a season in which we're getting into the depths of the longings of our soul and our need for rescue. And the text we're looking at this morning is a text that's often called uh, the the Annunciation, which also is another, comes from another Latin word. And uh, it just means the announcement. So uh, like baby on the way, that's an announcement. Or the pregnant woman who's wearing the t-shirt, drinking for two, that's an announcement that there's going to be a birth. Uh, But this just, this isn't just any normal kind of birth announcement. It's an announcement of a royal birth. The text is full of kingly imagery like throne and reign and kingdom. And this isn't just any old normal baby. This child will be called son of the most high, son of God. And this isn't any, any old normal conception. It happens while Mary is still a virgin. 
Now, right off the bat, there's, there's two things that we have to overcome if we're really going to hear this text this morning. On the one hand, there's a kind of prejudice that exists in our heart. And that prejudice is, is just rooted in the modern psyche that just quickly dismisses the virgin conception of Jesus as silly and ridiculous on these grounds. God's coming down, angels appearing, virgins giving birth. Well, back then, people believed stupid stuff like this. Now we know better. And it reminds me of a story that C.S. Lewis told. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the famous atheist professor who became a Christian, a professor at Oxford. And uh, this was in the 20th century. And uh, after he had become a Christian, he, he tells of a time where he was sitting in his office at Oxford. He's chatting with a fellow faculty member who's also a friend. And the window was open. And it was during Christmas season. And these carolers had gathered outside and they're singing Christmas carolers, carols. And uh, his friend just kind of snidely remarks something about like, glad that we now know better. And Lewis responded and said, I- I'm not sure what you're talking about. And his friend said, you know, now we know that virgins don't have babies. And Lewis paused and then he said, don't you think that they knew that back then too? <laughs> Isn't that the whole point? And I bring that up just simply to say this, that dismissing the virgin conception, because this was back when people were gullible and they just believed stupid stuff, is not only a completely unfair reading of history. People understood where babies come from and how they are made in the first century. But it also isn't even a fair reading of the text. Because Mary doesn't get it either. She struggles to understand. She wrestles with believing at first. And the gospel writers who record this event, Luke and Matthew, they draw our attention to this moment, not because it was something so easily believed, but because it wasn't. And I want you to invite you to press pause on your prejudice for a moment and listen to the text. But you know, there's another problem or another barrier that we have when we come to this text, and that is familiarity. And it doesn't matter if you're not yet a Christian or if you've been a Christian your, your whole life. You've heard this story again and again in Christmas specials, hearing it read at Christmas time, hearing it in the Christmas songs that we sing. And familiarity can sometimes keep us from actually engaging and listening to what is said. You know, years ago, uh, when I was a campus minister at Stanford, uh, I attended a ministry training in Atlanta, and I roomed with a guy that I didn't really know at the time, but who now is one of my closest friends. And uh, since we didn't really know each other, I had no idea what I was getting into. But that first night, the snoring started. And I'm not talking about the annoying little squeaks. I'm talking about loud, thundering snores. And it was so bad, and I didn't have the relational capital to smack him on the face or yell at him or shake him that I just decided I'm going to take my bedding and I went out into the hallway and I slept on this little small couch. And then, of course, the next morning, I don't bring it up because we don't know each other that well. And it's just kind of awkward and weird. But then the second night, the snoring starts again. And so I grab my bedding and I go outside and I sleep on the couch. And so that third day, that morning, I got up. I was like, I got to bring this up with him. And I was trying to figure out how. I said, hey, man, 
like, you realize how loud you snore? And he said, yes. <laughs> and, and I was like, why are we rooming together? Why did you pick me? But instead, what I said is, how in the world does your wife sleep in the same bed with you? And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, I guess she just got used to it. And this is the point. We have a remarkable ability to be able to tune out what is familiar to us. And that happens when we come to familiar texts like the one that we're looking at this morning. We miss the weightiness of this moment, both in terms of what it means and who it is that is showing up on the scene. This is God intruding into history in a unique way. Yahweh, the God of the Exodus that we've been exploring this past fall, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, enfleshing himself in the person of his son, keeping his promises when we haven't kept ours. And his purpose in showing up like this is to save. The child will be named Jesus, which comes from the Hebrew, which means God saves. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. This is the radical claim at the heart of Christianity. God shows up to save. And without it, Christianity becomes something entirely different, which is really to say that Christianity just it becomes the same as every other religion. Morals and virtues and religious experiences. Isn't that nice? Without it, Christianity becomes just another idea in the marketplace of ideas about how to save yourself. But Christianity is a big fat announcement. God saves. And God alone saves. This morning, we're getting Mary's side of the story. We're getting her witness. Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he went into painstaking detail to gather an orderly account. It's more than likely that he got this from Mary. She's the one experiencing this. And as he assembles his account, guided by the Spirit, it comes from Mary's telling of her story. Next week, we'll look at Joseph's side of the story. But what we can't miss is that the ultimate focus of this story is not on Mary or on Joseph or on the angel. It's on God, the God who saves. And I just want to look at two things this morning that are disclosed about God in this episode. And the first is this. God works in unlikely and unexpected places. You know, it wasn't Caesar Augustus, it wasn't Quirinius, the governor of Syria, it wasn't the first century angel investors and power brokers that God chose as the first agents through whom he would work his salvation. God picks a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere for the grand entrance of his messianic king. And I don't want us to miss the surprising details here because we're familiar with them. Luke tells us in verses 26 and 27 that the angel Gabriel brings news of this king's arrival to a place of no significance and to a person of no significance in the first century world. What do I mean by that? Gabriel was sent by God not to Jerusalem, which was the center of religious life in that day, 
nor to Rome, which was the center of political life, nor to Athens, which was the center of cultural and intellectual life in the first century, but to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. And he's coming there to announce the birth of a king. Now, that, those are important details because the region of Galilee was looked down upon. It was considered unsophisticated and backwards. We might say like a bunch of rednecks. That's how we do it in, in our day. And Nazareth was the dump of Galilee. In fact, a little later in the Gospels, in, in one of Jesus' encounters uh, with Nathaniel, uh, he hears that he's from Nazareth and he says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? God sent Gabriel to a place of no cultural significance. And not only that, but he sent Gabriel to a person of no cultural significance. A young Jewish virgin named Mary. We wouldn't know her name if it wasn't for this. She was poor. She was young, likely around the age of 13. So couldn't get her driver's license yet. She was from nowhere. And she was a woman. In a time when sadly women were not held in high esteem. Mary was powerless and Mary was irrelevant by cultural standards. And she lived on the wrong side of town. And this is what the angel says to her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, I want you to think about that word favored. Who gets the favor in our world? Right. Who gets the favor in high school? It's the beautiful. It's the talented. It's the athletic. It's the socially savvy. It's not usually the kids in the math club. It's not usually the kids uh, who don't have many friends. They're not the ones who get the favor, right? Who gets the favor in Silicon Valley? It's the powerful. It's the wealthy. It's the influential. It's the successful. But here God is coming and he is not playing by our rules. And he is setting his favor on someone of no cultural significance who comes from a place of no cultural significance. And you know, Mary doesn't know what to do with this. And I love the details here because it says she's greatly troubled by this greeting before he even gets his message out. In fact, she's terrified by his words, the Lord is with you. What does the Lord want with me? Who am I to receive such a visitation? Now I want you to imagine that this morning, all of a sudden these doors just burst open and the secret service comes running in and they run right to your seat and they grab you and they say, the president needs to speak with you at this moment. Okay. You're going to TT your pants. You're like, what is happening here? What is going on? And this is the experience that Mary is having at this moment. And the angel gives her some words of comfort. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The Greek word favor really derives from the word grace. It's you have been graced. You're a graced woman. God, by his great grace, has chosen Mary for something special. There are countless other teenage virgins in the first century world God could have chosen. Ones who are more important, more significant, more influential, more powerful. But God chose Mary according to his own mercy and grace. And here's something if we lift our eyes from this text that we'll recognize about God is that God loves to do this. 
God loves to choose people who are too old, like Sarai, Abram's wife. Too young, like David. Too many doubts and too many weaknesses, like Moses. Too bad a reputation, like the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair. He chooses the unlikely and unexpected because he is a God of grace. He works in these places that we don't find significant and important because he is a gracious God. And that's the setup for what we need to see is at the heart of this message. And that's the second thing I want to look at. God's purposes are bigger than our little dreams. So when we think of having God's favor, we usually think of it as hashtag blessed, right? Things working out for us, going well for us. We're living it up. We're living the dream. But God has something more in mind. And this is what the angel says to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And as we've already mentioned, Jesus means God saves. This is going to be the promised savior. Now, salvation in the Bible is not just about going to heaven when you die. It's more than that. It's about being rightly related to God. Rightly related to his king. Belonging to his kingdom. So this is a radical claim that this child is going to be the world's true king. The king who will save. And just so we don't miss it, the angel continues on in verse 32 and 33. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And these words take us into the heart of Israel's story. What do I mean by that? You know, the people of Israel had lived most of their history in bondage. First, it was to Egypt. We looked at that this fall. Then it was to the Assyrians. Then it was to the Babylonians in exile. And by the time of Jesus, they were under Roman occupation. And they longed for a liberator. The greatest season of freedom that they ever had was under a king named David. King David was the greatest king that Israel had ever known. But as the text tells us in great detail, he was flawed and broken just like everyone else. He had feet of clay. So God had promised that through David's line, there would one day come an even greater king, a king whose kingdom would have no end. And Israel was waiting for the arrival of this king. But along the way, Israel discovered something pretty unsettling, that their bondage was actually deeper than they realized. It wasn't just to foreign invaders and foreign rulers. It was to sin and idolatry. You know, bondage to sin and idolatry, it turns out, it's actually the human story. It is characteristic of the human condition. And if you just think about it for a few moments, you'll begin to see this pop up everywhere. That we give ourselves to the rule and reign of things in our life that don't deserve to rule and reign over us. When you live for your money and possessions, what happens to you? You become enslaved to jealousy and envy towards those who have more. And you become 
captive to fear and worry about losing what you have. When you give yourselves to the rule and reign of your physical beauty and what it can get you, you grow increasingly shallow as a person. And you may end up abusing your body through over-exercising or under-eating when your beauty starts to fade or you feel like it's being undone. When you give yourself to the rule and reign of success, you drive yourself so hard that you can never rest. And you often end up lonely because you've pushed relationships to the side all along the way. When you live for what others think of you, you lose all sense of self. And you find yourself in bondage to the affirmations and the accusations of other people. And your life becomes this one long narrative of trying to prove yourself. And get this, when you give yourself and live for morality and religion, you know what happens? You often become a proud, condescending, and cruel person to those who you regard as immoral and irreligious. And then when you fail, you're in bondage to unbearable guilt. All of this adds up to telling us as clear as, clear as it can be made. That we need rescue. We need deliverance. We need that more than anything else. And that's what the coming of this king is about. That's what his kingdom is all about. And this is a much bigger hope and dream than any of our little hopes and dreams for ourselves. The angel announced that this king is going to do what no other king has been able to do. And he's going to establish a kingdom that lasts forever. An eternal kingdom that will bring real freedom to God's people. I mean, this is big stuff. Stuff that we should feel the weight of. But there's one little problem. Mary has an important question for Gabriel. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, this is what we call a logistical question. A practical question. And we might add a very fair question. Because what Mary's essentially saying is, uh, I'm pretty sure Joseph ain't going to be the baby daddy because we've like never been together. You know what I mean? Know what you mean. Yes. And so the angel tells her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You know that? You know those words? If you've been here this fall and listened to the story of Exodus, right? Your, your imagination starts firing up. Overshadow. That's what the glory cloud did in the tabernacle. And now it's happening over the womb of Mary. And as the story unfolds, what we see is the glory that once dwelt in the holy of holies in the tabernacle of Israel. And only the high priest could enter in there once a year. That glory is now entering in to the womb of this woman. No explanation is given that will satisfy modern biological curiosities. She is given a mystery. And you can't imagine how, how she must have felt. Unworthy, of course. Scared, I'm sure. But something that I think that we often don't give enough attention to is her beginning to realize the scandal that this would bring into her life. For her to go around and say, hey, this baby in my belly is from God, it's not from Joseph, opens her up to the charge of not only sounding crazy, but of sounding like she's a liar and is immoral and she's blasphemous. 
But Mary is being asked to acquiesce to God's desires to do something far greater than she could have possibly imagined. This king is going to be God's son. Mary's womb would contain the one who's son of the Most High. And when you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and you read all the Gospels, they reveal that this is more than just royal hyperbole. It's ontological reality. This king is divine, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, God's eternal son coming to rescue us. You notice the Trinitarianness of this moment? The Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, right here, entering in, coming to save. And it just feels impossible. And God in his kindness gives Mary a sign. You're going to go to Elizabeth, your cousin, your old cousin. She's already six months pregnant, pregnant, barren Elizabeth, graced by the Lord. But here's what you can't miss. God's purposes are bigger than our little dreams. Which means we're not always going to understand what he's up to at any given moment. And this is where the weight of this text really lands on me and should land on you is... How are to we, we to respond to this story? Okay. God the Father did not send Jesus the Son to be our consultants. He came to be our king. He didn't come to give us recommendations about how we might run our lives a little better. But ultimately we decide who we will sleep with, who we will forgive, how we will spend our money, and what's worth pursuing. He's not a consultant. He's a king. He's the true king of all the world. So the most important thing that we can do is submit to this king. And that is exactly what we see Mary doing in this passage. You know, it's a beautiful thing that God shows up uninvited Enters in, says this is going to happen without permission. But the angel Gabriel waits and gives Mary the opportunity to receive and own this before the last words, he departs. It's this delicate dance of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God calling her in to participate in his great work. But she has to submit And what does she say? She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We could do a whole sermon series on those words. But I want you to think what that meant for her at that moment. Mary probably had a script for her life. You know what I mean? Like we all do. She's betrothed to Joseph. So she's probably planning the wedding. They're registering at all the local hotspots in Nazareth. She's organizing the great week-long celebration that was common for weddings in Jewish circles in those days. Maybe she was looking forward to a nice little quiet life in Galilee with Joseph, maybe with a few kids one day. And then God breaks in and says, Mary, I have a different script for you. And she yields. She submits, which is exactly how we should respond if we believe Jesus is the king. But make no mistake, that can feel incredibly costly. You have your life, you have your plans, you have your agendas, you have your hopes and dreams. And then Jesus crashes in and guess what? They get adjusted, they get rearranged, they get reprioritized and your hopes and dreams get replaced by different hopes and dreams. 
And this is what it feels like when God takes away something or someone you've been building your life around. Can you say, I know I'm going to be okay, God. I trust you. What do you have for me? When God scrambles up your carefully laid plans, can you say, God, I want what you want for me? When God doesn't give you what you've been working for, can you say, not my will, but your will be done? All of this is wrapped up in Mary's words, let it be to me according to your word. But don't misunderstand, that can feel incredibly costly. And yet, ultimately, it's the most freeing thing in the world. When we're able to submit ourselves to Christ's kingly reign, we actually become free in ways that we never thought possible. Because we were made for this. Mary didn't have all the answers. She didn't know or understand all the hows and all the whys. But what she did have was trust in God. Faith. Faith doesn't mean you can't ask questions. Doesn't mean you can't have doubts. Mary had hers, but she still believed, still trusted, still submitted to the word of the Lord. Submitted herself to the coming of the king. Because true faith drops all conditions. And the crazy thing is this, Mary didn't yet know all that we now know. That this king didn't come simply to demand that we give away everything for his sake. This king came to give everything away for our sake. And Mary would later discover something that would shake her to the core. This one who is God's son, who's going to establish a forever kingdom one day would be bloodied, mangled, and hanging on a cross. How must she have felt at that moment? How could this be? How, would this, how will this bloody, horrifying mess of my son be the king who will set his people free? And yet, at that moment, was God's greatest act of salvation. The king came to die in our place, and it changes everything. He's the real king who shows up to save, right? This king calls us to give everything we we have away to him, but it's only in response of him giving everything away for us and our salvation. And if that's what the true king is like, then wouldn't submission to him be true freedom? You know, it's easy to miss the emotional complexities that must have been going on in Mary in her heart in this encounter. Flatten it out, sanitize it, make it sentimental. So you have to understand of how impossible all this must have felt. Not only for Mary, but for Israel, who'd been waiting 400 years for God to deliver. And it just seemed like, is this ever going to happen? Are his promises ever going to come true? And I'm going to guess that you know that feeling as well. That it all just feels impossible. And there is a fear inside you and me. That there is no answer to the most anguished cries of our hearts. And there's no answer because no one is listening and no one cares. But God hears, God cares, and God has answered in his son. And that's why this moment is so important for us. Because Christmas is a time when we celebrate God doing the impossible. In the birth of his son, Jesus. And we anticipate him doing the impossible again, making all things new at Christ's return. And it is a challenge to our hopelessness. 
Because it draws our attention to the God who keeps his impossible promises. He is the God who works in unlikely and unexpected places. He is the God whose purposes are far bigger than our little dreams. He is the God who saves. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for me? If it is, we will find ourselves saying, Behold, I am your servant, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that in your great love, you intruded into the scene of human history to rescue and to save, to liberate, to heal, to forgive, to make new. And uh, you will reign forever and ever, Lord Jesus. Would you help us to hear uh, your summons, your invitation to come and order our lives under your rule and reign. uh, That we might find that fit that we were made for, that we've been longing for all our lives. And would you help us to learn how to wait, to wait on your promises and to have that confidence and trust fueled by what you have done in the gospel. We thank you for this passage of scripture, but more importantly, for the truth, for the reality of what it conveys, uh, that you are the God who works in unlikely and unexpected places, that you're the God who has purposes that are far bigger than our little dreams, and you are the God who saves. Would you cause that to land in our hearts this morning, and would you make it reorder our lives? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.